Finally. 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 Finally, beloved. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is pleasing. Whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence. And if there is anything worthy of praise. Think. Think. Think about these things. And welcome to the sixth episode of Whatever is True. I am your host, Michael Guecki. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. It's going to be a good one. Uh, we are the podcast that poses those frustratingly simple questions about church, faith, or theology, and then we make our guests answer them. In a world fraught with many questions and seemingly few answers, we think that there is great value in exploring our faith's deepest traditions but keeping an eye for where the rubber meets the road. So we are so glad that you chose to join us today. We want to extend a special welcome to those who are joining us for this episode from the Confirmation Project podcast. We are so glad that you chose to stop by and hope that you will add your voice to our conversation today on our website, whateveristruepodcast.com. So today we're talking about confirmation and the history of confirmation and its equivalent practices in the broad Christian church might be summarized as a process of change and adaptation. And in fact, the Confirmation Project has on its website an excellent timeline of this history. I'll link to it in the show notes so that you can find it later. But put simply, confirmation began mostly as an adult activity. It was deeply connected to the practice of both baptism and the Lord's table, and that later gave way as it became increasingly common for children to be baptized until the Reformation, in which Calvin and Luther sought to integrate the practice of confirmation as a pedagogical step between infant baptism and adult faith, and also the sacrament of the Lord's table. In America, two broad theological streams of confirmation emerged, emphasizing either the crisis conversion or Christian nurture. In the first case, students were expected to make a decision for Christ, to become baptized, and then active members in the life and work of their congregation. In the second, students were already baptized and expected to travel through a relatively structured process of formation and discipleship, with several significant milestones, confirmation being one of them, or maybe even the most significant of them. Today, confirmation in the mainline church is often no longer connected with the sacraments of baptism or the Lord's table, at least directly. Instead, congregations have had a great deal of theological freedom to appropriate the historical practice in ways that make sense for their local context. But unfortunately, many churches have simply carried on the tradition of confirmation and have never asked the question if it's outlived its usefulness, if maybe the dwindling students and undeniable trend for students to graduate church in confirmation has brought us to a point where it is time to move on to something new. So what is to be done? Should confirmation simply be repackaged for a new time? Should it be done away with completely so that something new might arrive? Uh, maybe it's reached the end of its usefulness and we should return to the early church and seek a different model of discipleship for our students. These are the fundamental questions for today's discussion where the statement is, confirmation is no longer an effective form of Christian formation and should be replaced. Here with me today to discuss this statement are three absolutely wonderful conversation partners, and I'm thrilled to have them with us. First, a returning welcome to Kellen Smith and Chad Enns, our regular contributing panelists. And today, we are so blessed and excited to have with us special guest Katie Douglas, uh, we'll tell you more about her in just a minute. Kellen Smith is the associate pastor for youth, their families, and college ministries at Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church just outside Philadelphia. This is his second time on Whatever is True. It's great to have you back, Kellen. Great to be back, Michael. Uh, Chad Enns is with us. He is pastor at Eastside Presbyterian Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He always brings a fresh perspective to our conversation, and I'm thrilled to have him back again today. Welcome back, Chad. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Wow, silky smooth. I love your new microphone. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> and it is with great pleasure that I also want to introduce uh, Katie Douglas. Katie is the co-director of the Confirmation Project. That's a Lilly Endowment-funded research project that is studying confirmation programs and equivalent practices across five mainline U.S. denominations. And if you haven't heard about the Confirmation Project yet, you need to go to their website right now, theconfirmationproject.com. It is great. You'll find resources. You'll find conversations. And uh, it's a great resource. Make sure to check them out. But Katie holds a, a PhD in practical theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. She's an ordained minister in the PCUSA. Uh, in addition to leading this grant, Katie has worked as an associate pastor at the American Protestant Church 
which is an international congregation in Bonn, Germany. She has taught as adjunct faculty at PTS in the area of education and formation. Uh, Katie and her husband, John, they have two sons, uh, George and Paul. They like national parks and bike rides and tents and fly rods, cross-country skiing. Uh, They go out and they do great stuff. They currently reside in that base camp of Seattle, Washington. It's great to have you with us, Katie. Thanks so much, Michael. And I should probably share that we're expecting another baby boy this July. Woohoo! I thought I'd save it for announcing on this podcast. Ha-ha. That is amazing. You heard Thank it here you. Congratulations. first. <laughs> wow. I'm a specialist in so many areas, one main one being raising boys. So, well, <laughs> but it's good to be here. <laughs> Katie, thanks for setting the bar so that now none of us can get in another word after that. That's there you all. go. Thanks. <laughs> all right. Well, once again, our statement for today is confirmation is no longer an effective form of Christian formation and should be replaced. So let's check in with our panel and see where they are coming into this conversation. So I'm going to ask you each uh, two questions. Uh, did you go through confirmation as a student yourself? And if so, what was it like? And what, which way are you leaning coming into the conversation? Which way uh, are you thinking towards the question at hand? So, uh, Kellen, we'll start with you, if that's okay. Uh, ask you once again, uh, what was confirmation like for you, and which way are you leaning? Yeah, absolutely. So I did go through confirmation, and in fact, it was an interesting experience because it was just me and one other guy and the pastor. So it was a confirmation class of two people, uh, and very Trinitarian that it was just the three of us meeting. And I remember watching these old videos of, you know, the early uh, videos of Jesus and the early Christian church. And I don't know what they were because I'd love to see them again, but they were videos that have stuck with me. And, and honestly, I remember more about the experience of having those regular sessions with my pastor than what, it, what exactly I took away from it. Um, but it's it con- certainly a contrast now because as a pastor, I am at, at my current church in Bryn Mawr, I'm responsible for the confirmation program. And now I have up to 40 kids in a confirmation class. So quite a contrast from my own personal experience to now what I'm responsible for in ministry. And as far as the question goes, I'm leaning false uh, for today's conversation. All right. Thanks, Kellen. Uh, Chad, what about you? Uh, so my confirmation class was actually a large class, uh, and I don't remember a whole lot about it other than most of our sessions included us sitting in a circle, listening to, uh, whoever it was that was leading. I think at sometimes it was the pastor. Sometimes it was a Sunday school teacher. Sometimes it was the youth director. Um, and they were always blabbing on about something and I don't remember much of it. I remember being nervous about having to write and share my own faith statement and uh, remember that they did confirm me. That's about all I remember in all honesty. Um, And it wasn't a terrible experience, but it it certainly wasn't incredibly engaging. Uh, And I am entering this conversation. uh, I'm going true primarily because of the last part. I would say uh, false for the first part of the statement but I'm going to go true. Yeah, I think it should be uh, replaced significant to a significant extent and perhaps replaced isn't the right word, but I'm going to go true. Okay. Thanks a lot, Chad. Uh, Katie, uh, what are you, uh, how are you coming into the conversation and what was your confirmation experience like? I love this question. Um, I think that's the right place to start when we're asking questions is where do we come from? My confirmation experience, when I think back on it, there is a picture hanging in Kettering, Ohio in Fairmont Presbyterian Church of our confirmation class. And it had about eight, eight or nine people in it, one of whom is now my sister-in-law. Um, so we went through in seventh and eighth grade. Um, we had a class that met in the very serious room of our church, which was the um, like the session meeting room. So we felt like we were kind of important because we were in that room. And then one of the women at the church who was a lawyer taught the confirmation class. And she was um, just this huge personality and walked on the tables to get our attention. And I think she probably felt like the content she was trying to teach was boring. So she was trying to liven it up a bit. But I remember watching 
watching videos, maybe the same ones um, that you guys watched um, about church governance and with all these diagrams of how the church was structured. And then we also read a small thin book on John Calvin and another one on Martin Luther that I still have today. And I remember at the time feeling uh, this weird tension, like, wow, suddenly church is becoming kind of serious and taking... um, Take, we're taking all this really seriously, like almost as serious as we take things in school. And I'm expected to do homework and write a little paper. And, um, you know, I have to say it was overall a really positive experience, not because anything super creative was happening. Um, but when I look back at that group of people, I think the entire ecology and Christian formation culture happening at that church was one that really lasted with all of us who participated. And all of those people, well, I shouldn't say all of them. I'm sure there's one or two who aren't involved or I've at least lost touch with. So I'm not sure that it's true for everyone. But um, all the people that I'm still in touch with who were part of that confirmation class are still very involved in in the church. And leadership roles, not necessarily in ministry, um, but are married to pastors or they're involved as a deacon or an elder or a Sunday school teacher at their church. Um, so anyway, I had, I feel like I had a really positive experience, but I can't say it was any type of fireworks or anything extremely um, exciting, except for the fact that it was a program that people obviously invested in. Um And as far as the statement goes, I would say I am leaning toward false, but I almost want to argue true to be the devil's advocate. Um, I think we should do away with it, Um, but I'd love to hear, but I I think that trying to ask what would be lost actually gives us a good reason to argue for it. Um, So anyway, that's where I stand. Here I stand. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Uh, we'll certainly get into that more in uh, the discussion to follow. So thank you all. Uh, let's take a short break. And right after that break, we're going to jump right into the roundtable discussion. So sit back and uh, we'll be coming back soon. And welcome back. Uh, remember, our statement for discussion is confirmation is no longer an effective form of Christian formation and should be replaced. Remember, at the end of our discussion, each panelist will have to decide if this statement is true or false. And I would encourage you, as you're listening in, uh, be thinking the same for yourself and make your way over to our website, whateveristruepodcast.com, where you can vote and engage in the discussion as well. As we make our way into this conversation, I'm interested, we have a variety of perspectives of confirmation here. We have people who have been through confirmation, people who are leading confirmation programs, uh, Katie, who's overseeing research across multiple denominations and their practices of confirmation. Uh, I'm curious, um, what do you think the end goal of confirmation, of of confirmation as a program, what what should that end goal be? Um, and, and you can go prescriptive or you can go descriptive, right? What you think the end goal is in most programs, or maybe you might want to talk about what you think the end goal should be. But what is the end goal? What is the purpose of confirmation as you see it in the contemporary church? I'll jump in on that one. Uh, I remember in Esterville, we told our students the end goal was uh, a decision. And it was a decision to either join the church and to partake in membership or to decide to not join the church. And so all that we did in confirmation uh, was to figure out what is it that we believe as Presbyterians, and in particular in this congregation, how is it that this church operates, and how does the broader denomination operate, so that they had all the information uh, to evaluate and decide on their own if indeed they wanted to join this church or not. And if they chose to join that church, part of that decision was affirming their faith and belief in God and all of the tenets of the church. So that was, uh, to sum it up, our end goal as we shared it with our students. So specifically a decision for membership. Is that what I'm hearing, Chad? 
Essentially, yes. Yeah, okay. So I want to share some stories that I've heard from kids. So I was a speaker at a confirmation camp, and I was really interested in what the kids thought the goal of confirmation was. And um, some were able to articulate what the minister, the leader at the church had said. But one of the kids said, I want to get an iPad. My mom told me if I finished this, I would get an iPad. And I, I think, honestly, for a lot of our kids out there, the motivation and the carrot that's been dangled in front of them is the parent says to them, you know, what would it take to motivate you to go through this thing that I think is really good for you and that I want to feel like I did my duty as a parent. So um, then they say, you know, I'll give you a thousand dollars or I'll give you an iPad or you'll get this really big gift or celebration at the end. And so even if the parent and the youth minister has the best of intentions, sometimes I think the end goal is actually some kind of present or a gift, unfortunately. Um, for, the, for me, that raises a lot of questions when we hear that from kids. Yeah, I'll follow up on that. The first day of confirmation when, when we're starting a new program year, I actually start first by saying what the end goal is not. And Michael, you alluded to it in your introduction. Uh, and what I say is that confirmation isn't a graduation, but an introduction to greater participation in the life of the church. So I try to put that out there at the very beginning. The reality is we have up to half of the confirmands who disappear after the program, but at least we would we want to begin by articulating the fact that this is not a class. In fact, I have dropped the word class from any confirmation materials because I want them to think about it less as a thing that you do and you're done and more so as something that is um, inviting you into a full uh, Christian life and and an opportunity to fully uh, discover what what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Presbyterian, and, and kind of live into that identity. So for me, part of the experience and part of the end goal really is immersion, immersion into learning more about the church, learning more about theology and faith, and the way that the church is organized, and ultimately culminating in them, um, you know, making that decision. But for me. Well, I'm not placing as much emphasis on the decision because with very few exceptions, uh, the majority of the confirmands, they're going to be agreeing to join uh, regardless of how they may feel about it. Yeah. Oh, and I would, can I just jump in and say, um, I think in from my perspective and just having thought about this for a while, I think the goal of confirmation in my mind should be discipleship. Um, we want, we want to give people a way to, uh, become followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, if that's, that would be in my, I don't know, from my perspective, the overarching goal of all of this. Um, and, and I guess part of that is distinguishing that from membership in any one church, just because, um, our society is becoming so transient. And so, in programs that I've seen that have been doing a really good job, it seems like they are giving they're giving people an opportunity to become a disciple in a way that that that's their identity that can go with them as they go off to college or as they're in college and maybe are going to be moving um, or their relationships with different people might change or they might even switch churches, but but they identify as a disciple. You know, uh, it's interesting as we we sort of lay out sort of some goals that we have in our programming. And Katie reminds us, you know, it's likely there's a kid who just wants the iPad, right? I mean, or, or, or mom and dad promise we're going to go do this thing. And, and this kid's thinking like, hey, I do this thing once a week for this school year and the payoff is going to be worth it, right? The question is, uh, I, I think part of what surrounds that is this idea of form. So in our question is, is confirmation is no longer an effective form of Christian formation, right? Endemic to this question isn't that we want to get rid of Christian formation. 
the idea is, is confirmation in its current practice so riddled with those problems, right? So riddled with the graduation mentality, so riddled with the cultural construct that says, once Johnny gets through, Johnny can get the prize and uh, he's going to be part of the family wall of confirmation students at our family church, right? Is it so, is the form itself so riddled with these cultural problems that it no longer serves as a effective form of Christian formation? What do you think? I would agree. I'll jump back in to say I'd agree. And in fact, uh, I would mention that I think the word replace should be replaced with the word reformed. And I do believe that the current practices of, and structures of confirmation uh, are are very much in need of a type of reformation. And certainly that could look different in every context, in every church, in every place. But to continue to do it the way we've always done it, when the culture around us continues to change before our eyes, I think would be would do our you know our teens our, our young our young people who are going to be going through confirmation a disservice. So I think we can be certainly more intentional about it. And and going back to one other thing that you mentioned, Michael, um, I think not only is it this incentive at the end, this iPad or this carrot at the very end, but I think I've not had anyone told me that tell me this directly, but I think that. There are some parents who uh, are are telling their children, you'll go through confirmation, and if you complete that, I'll no longer make you go to church again. So th- if you complete this, you can then no longer feel obligated to have to come, and that can be your choice. One thing I wonder in that then, uh, Kellen, is I want to chase down that distinction you want to make between replace and reformation. What what for you distinguishes those two words? Why would you want to nuance replaced why would we not replace confirmation? Why would we reform it? Well, I think there's a lot of value in what confirmation is and what it seeks to do in its variety of purposes. And why I don't think it should be replaced is because there is a certain, uh, there is a certain level of um, awareness to some degree within the church. I mean, everyone has heard of confirmation to some degree. And, and certainly in my congregation, uh, when, when, uh, when young people get to their eighth grade year, they're expecting they're going to participate in it. And so I think to ple- to completely abandon it, we would lose the, the, the kind of incentive, the, uh, the worth that has been built up through confirmation, the value that's been built up in it over the years. But there is certainly more opportunity to, to do more with confirmation in terms of being more intentional, but how is this really meeting the needs of our current uh, youth as they go through that journey? And how can we uh, help to walk that walk alongside them uh, toward the idea of Christian formation and discipleship? So I want to pick a little bit more on the reform replace. I mean, so you're wanting to change, but you want to keep the essence of it and and hence reform, why not go replace? I mean, take an example of a, a house where we, instead of talking about reforming a house, maybe we refurbish a house. Um, you're, you're keeping the essential same structure, the, the same number of bathrooms and where the kitchen is and uh, the same number of bedrooms. And you can make some changes. You can knock out a wall here, add a wall there. Uh, why not? I think it might be time. Why not knock the whole thing down and then don't build a supermarket, but build a house again, but build it in a way that makes sense for the current needs. That's why I would argue for replace, uh, because it's not that we don't need a house anymore. We still need to serve the same essential uh, tenants that, that confirmation has has been aiming to serve. Um, but I think we need a whole new structure, one, to be more effective, and two, to kind of shake up the parents who are... Uh, offering unhelpful um, prizes to, to their kids and to shake it up for the kids who maybe will look at it in a fresh way. Well, you know, I would say that when I when I say reform confirmation, that it doesn't necessarily mean that it would look the same as it always looked. Maybe Maybe the reformation would be akin to a kind of restoration of an old historic home or building where, you know, the structure, the, you know, the, the foundation is the same, but it does look very different. The other thing that I would say is, because we've mentioned the, 
the parent piece a few times. I would even, another option that I'm thinking about is that confirmation should not just be replaced or reformed, but yet it should be expanded. I believe that that we should actually do more with confirmation in terms of what is it? Is it just a one-time thing? Is discipleship just, uh, discipleship obviously isn't just a one-time thing that we go through a class on discipleship and we're Christian disciples, but rather it's a lifelong thing, you know? So we don't want to, this is another thing I talk about when I'm meeting with students is that um, I don't, I don't just want them to be class attendees, but lifelong disciples. So what does it look like for confirmation to continue beyond just a, you know, one year, six month, you know, three week, whatever it looks like program in, in, in a particular context? One of the things uh, from my perspective and looking at a lot of different churches and a lot of different ways that confirmation is happening. And I think Kellen, you're, you're pointing to is there's some level of social capital that confirmation has. So for example, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. The University of Dayton is there. We have a number of private Roman Catholic schools. And around this age of 13 or seventh or eighth grade, there's an expectation, the social pressure and social expectation that all the kids are going to go through this rite of passage. Um, and and then also what parallels this is there's a lot of really interesting research happening right now on brain research and the adolescent brain talking about how this is a really great time to engage youth in risk-taking activities. They're able to um, kind of see themselves in a new way. They're willing to um, take on challenging ideas and they're questioning really big things sometimes, not all the time, but that this is like the prime time socially, sometimes in some settings, um, to go through a rite of passage like this. Um, and then another thread that I just hear that I what I think is coming into play too is there's also historical capital. So there's something about being within a community or within a church and knowing that, you know, you're in fifth grade and then you're in sixth grade. And then in seventh grade, you get to do the special mystery mission trip, or you get to do, you know, you get to go through confirmation where the younger kids are anticipating this and looking up to it. And um, what I would ask Chad is, do you think it's worth it to replace something or restore it so significantly that we lose some of the historic capital. Um, and so I guess in that sense, I'm broadening my idea or the, the way I'm using the word historical to say, um, if we look at the history of the church, there is a really long history of using the word confirmation. And that starts with the Latin word confirmatio, um, and then changes over time as um, the word has been translated into different languages. But there is this really long history and tradition. Do you think it's worth it to lose that history in the restoration process to try to do something new and different? My hope is that in... Um in what was the word that we're using uh, replacing <laughs> as opposed to reforming um my hope is that we won't lose um too i know we'll lose some and i think it's okay if we lose even a significant amount of that capital because i think that some of that capital is actually working against us so for in getting confirmed, they're now a member of a congregation. They stay in that congregation for the rest of high school, let's say. Uh, and then they, as the common story, they go off to school. And then sometime in their 20s, uh, probably late 20s, maybe early 30s, they've got kids and they remember, oh yeah, I'm a member at a church. They join a congregation and now they're able to uh, just do a transfer of membership. They're a member in a congregation. Now, the question is, how much do they remember from confirmation or any of their faith formation beforehand? My guess is that because, like I said with mine, I don't remember a whole lot of my confirmation. Um, I think there's a lot of people who no longer think uh, critically about faith and theology and just join a congregation because of programs that are offered or because of things that look catchy or happen to work well. And uh, they find themselves in a place that theologically does not jive with their beliefs. And so uh, confirmation is an entrance into membership, but if it is not taken uh, with a lot of seriousness or uh, if it doesn't provide a way for continued uh, thinking, it can lead to uh, conflicts 
later down the road. Yeah, I want to jump in on something you said there, Chad, which is for me, uh, a tension that I that I experience when leading a confirmation program, which is the idea of Christian education or knowledge versus Christian formation in practice, because it seems like there's certainly been uh, a lot of um, a lot of stock put in the Christian education piece. And, you know, it's important that our confirmands learn all about the history of the church, learn about theology, learn all this information about what it means uh, to, to be a part of the church. But then how does that relate to how it's lived out in terms of Christian formation and practice? And, and I don't have a good answer for it other than to lift up for me that it's attention you know, how do we um, explain exactly what it means to be a Christian and then also encourage them to live it out? I want to tell like so many stories that are coming out of our, um, the confirmation project research, but uh, there's one in particular that I feel like I just have to tell you guys, because I feel like um, there are good examples out there of people doing amazing things that are both would be considered reformation or replacing or doing the old stuff, the old way. And, Somehow it's still really meaningful where they are, but there's one church in Dallas, Texas called Union. And so what they've tried to do is they've, they've kind of thrown everything out and said, look, the language of confirmation is no longer helpful. Um, we don't, you know, nobody really knows what it means. And the people who are asking these questions about like intellectual Christian education questions, um, are really college age. And we don't think that this is something that we want to have happen like once in a person's life. And maybe like Chad was saying, they experience it once, but it's not really happening at a meaningful time or a memorable time. And so when they come back to it later in life, it's, they're kind of saying, you know, this wasn't, um, that wasn't really meaningful for me. Um, so, you know, like if the church was to say like, here's confirmation for adults, these people would kind of go like, what the heck? I don't want to do that. But at this church that's um, grown out of a coffee shop, um, that's for college students at Southern Methodist University, it's called Union. Um, and they call this new way of doing Christian formation and education, the Union way. Um, it's code for confirmation and like coming into the community. But they all, and then they use all these really fun metaphors, like, but, but I think actually the thing I'm most impressed by with it is each person kind of does an IEP or an individualized education plan for their own spiritual journey. So they pick three or four spiritual disciplines that they want to do and practices that they want to have form them. Um, and then they have somebody who's like a mentor or an accountability partner who keeps, who checks in with them throughout the year to see how it's going. And then, um, they and then the, they're accountable to this community because they're kind of blessed or prayed for and commissioned for this year of growth, and then they report back um, and even write write a state. They have a statement of faith they can react to and and talk about, and it all comes out of the United Methodist Church. They're using these traditional statements of faith, but it's all kind of been renamed and recoded. And then the thing that I think is really interesting about it is. They can do it again next year. They can do this every year if they want to, or they can, they like ante up again. Um, they don't have to, but a lot of them do. And, um, I feel like they're a really good example of throwing everything out and trying to get to the heart and the essential kind of the essence of, you know, the purpose of confirmation. However, I think also doing that is kind of threatening to, uh, I don't know, like s traditional ways of doing church in the communities that have been, have programs that are really successful. Um, anyway, that's just one story. I, it, we'll, we'll be posting that on our website, that portrait of that congregation, Joy Arroyo visited them, but that'll be up um, in the next couple of months. Um, but I, I feel like they're just a congregation that I was thinking, wow, you guys have done this in a totally different way, but it's obviously having a really big impact on that community and the faith lives of the people who are there. And I would jump in here and say, you know, as our questions always do, they, they present something simply, which is full of different complex layers, right? And so I would say personally, in my own ministry, my own confirmation uh, leading, 
you know, uh, getting rid of confirmation uh, would not be helpful in my context. And there's lots of reasons for that. Social, um, you know, the history of our congregation, the sort of the practice within our students. And I'll be honest, uh, I just put together our statements of faith that are being go, uh, going before session next Tuesday. And uh, there are some really strong statements of faith. I mean, uh, kids... Uh, and not strong necessarily just theologically, but strong in terms of their own experience of faith and their connectedness to our church community. So it's it's not to say that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it does make me wonder, to what extent are we hampering students' ability to be formed when we put them through a process that may have been designed to be educated And Kellen, I'm sort of using your language there, right? I mean, if confirmation is about imparting divine knowledge, then, uh, you know, I'm probably not the best qualified person to do that. I I don't have a PhD and I don't have this depth of knowledge, right? But if it's about inviting students into relationship with the living Christ and a community that seeks to follow him, I think that becomes a much uh, more manageable goal. The question is, does the form allow that? In my context, I think it does. I think other contexts, the form may cut so far against that that it doesn't. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I'll jump in to say that, uh, Michael, um, answering your question and Katie, going back to something that you said, one of, I feel like in our, in my context here, uh, we've recently done some reforms within the program, one of which was to reform uh, the way that we approach uh, the idea of a, uh, an affirmation of faith and, you know, where it's typical that a confirmand would write their own statement of faith. And one of, one of the things that we've done is we've turned that into a project, which we have called the disciple project in which uh, rather than just say what they believe, they uh, rather are seeking to experience what they believe or are learning about what they believe. So uh, it's a process where they're taking on a traditional Christian practice for 30 days. They're journaling about it. They're reflecting on it. And ultimately, they're creating a a project uh, that will uh, tell the story of what it was like to experience that Christian practice with the idea behind all that being it's not just something that they're going to learn about what it means to uh, they're not just going to learn the the knowledge about what's required to take on that practice, but they're also going to be invited into a deeper relationship with Christ. And so that's something we're currently doing this year. And so we'll see we'll see what the outcome is. And you know, something that is experienced can be challenging to measure, but I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm wondering if I can actually do uh, a little pushing back here uh, on the group. I, so I'm actually in favor. I like the idea of throwing in these experiential practices in the course of the confirmation year or or years uh, so that it becomes not only about uh, measuring what it is I believe against what this church that I'm considering joining believes, but it also becomes about uh, taking bolder steps uh, and living into this walk of faith that we are called to live. I like that. However, my my concern is that if we would put too much emphasis on, you know, we're not all going to believe the same thing and it's we're all on a journey anyway, so it, it you know, it, it's not that we have to have the right measure of faith, but we just have to embrace that we're all on this journey and that we're doing it together. What about um the part of confirmation that is measuring uh, where we are in the spectrum of theology, you know, so a particular congregation is in a particular place theologically, and it's usually or hopefully within the spectrum of its broader denomination. But an individual find him or herself to be uh, far astray from that theology. And if not enough emphasis is placed on what it is that we believe within this denomination and in this congregation and figuring out what it is that you believe, might we find an individual or individuals or even groups within congregations that vary so significantly on what it is that they believe that it, it hinders their ability to function. Uh, I just wondering how you would push back on that. I think I, well, just to share a story to support that one of the young young adults that I interviewed at one point um, was talking about how he went through the confirmation 
process and then was asked to write a statement of faith at the end and then wrote something that he really, truly, sincerely believed that was, as he described it, completely heretical, according to the church, that Jesus isn't a savior, that there are all these different ways to worship God and that God takes many forms and basically was not in any way resonant with the church's beliefs. But yet they all voted heartily to approve this young man for membership in the church and to confirm his faith. And um, I think that uh, you're right, Chad, that there's, um, I don't know, there. We're, I, I, I think it's hard when the church is put in a position of feeling like it's supposed to be some kind of gatekeeper. Um, and I think that's what sometimes confirmation, how it used to function. Actually, up until the 70s, most denominations had... Um, in their guiding documents, statements about how uh, youth could not come forward for confirmation until they had confirmed their faith and the church had confirmed the faith of youth, and then they could participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, and it seems like the the reaction to that was, hold on a minute, like, who are we to be, you know, fencing the table? Um, so shouldn't we just be really welcoming and affirming um, of youth who want to be involved in our communities? Why are we trying to like doing anything to keep them out? So I think that some congregations um, started to basically have really low standards of expectation for youth and also sort of started to lose their own ability to articulate what they believe in a way that youth could push back against. I feel like raising toddlers right now, one of the ways that my kids learn is I kind of say, this is the way we treat each other in our home. And then, um, you know, when they break the boundary, I give a response that says like, that's actually not who we are. You know, we are this, um, you know, if you want to be in this room with all of us, I want you to not throw toys at people's faces or whatever it is. Um, but it does, well, you know, we, (laughs) but we, I mean, I feel like though, in some ways the church, has to take on the role of being a responsible and loving parent to say, if you're not here where we are, um, we want to affirm that you are loved and that we care about you. But being a Christian actually does entail some specific beliefs. Um, it's not that we're trying to dictate everything you believe, but if you're in more dissonance than harmony with those beliefs, um, you know, we want to acknowledge that as well and acknowledge where you are in a respectful way that doesn't force you to feel like we'll take you no matter what. Or I I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Can someone else say it more clearly? (laughs) Well, and I I just would add to that, Katie, that uh, we live in a society where adolescence in some senses, and I can't say this as well as a sociologist could, but Adolescence is growing in time, right? The, the, the time in which students go in, in that sort of phase of self-discernment and without uh, responsibilities that were traditional in years before, right, is extending so that that's being given diff- different names. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I do practically, I don't know what I think about this theologically, but practically I've begun to think about confirmation in similar ways to the, the way our church practices infant baptism. In that I think of it as this isn't these students affirming uh, their faith to such an extent at which um, they're going to have to live with this statement of faith and they're going to have to cope with its inadequacies. I think of it as these are eighth graders, right? And and what they're doing is they, they are processing as best as they can what they believe. But really what we're asking them to do is to trust God and to be connected to their church family, Right. And if they express in the midst of that document that I, I do feel connected and I do seek to be a disciple and they're somewhat in bounds of, of the Orthodox Church, that we've got to make space for that. I, I think one asked, does that open the door for a non-theological, non-creedal structure of the church? And like you're saying, Katie, are we now putting ourselves in position where students have nothing to learn against, right? Have we just become a playground with no walls? And um, that's not a very safe playground. I think you bring up another really good point, which is, so in the early church, catechumens were adults, right? They were people who were converts in their adult life, and they were at a really different place 
regarding maturity and spiritual maturity and life commitment than eighth graders are, um, which is a good, I think the comparison between what are we doing here? How does it relate to baptism is a great question. Um, I think the expectations that we have of somebody in eighth grade are also very different than we have of an adult who's converted to become a Christian. And one of my friends, Carrie Pattison, who's a pastor, uh, I remember she and I were talking about confirmation and she said, you know, if these kids were really smart, they would just wait one year and go through our adult membership program where we require almost nothing of adults who become new Christians. But for youth, we have this elaborate, extensive retreats and classes and all of this stuff. And I just thought that question was so profound. You know, what is the appropriate rite of passage that is both meaningful to the person going through it, but also appropriate to the the age that they are and the commitments they're actually able to make, the language that they have and how articulate they're able to be about what they believe. How are those matching with their place in life and everything? Um, And have we, have we put things in kind of a, are, are we out of sync a little bit? Like we're requiring so little from adults who would probably, I mean, when you're, if you convert as an adult, you're really longing to kind of grow and be fed. And are we requiring just so much of youth and which might be totally inappropriate for their age? Yeah. Why is it that we don't require more of adults who are interested in joining the church or who are, uh, have made a decision to follow Christ? And so we, We say, oh, yeah, come to a class or two and here you go, membership. And then good luck. Yeah. And I think those are the people who would actually, I think it's funny to even say the word require because they, I think they are the people who really want it. Like if you think of it, I don't know if you guys have ever read uh, Anne Lamott's book, Traveling Mercies, but her story of coming to faith, like she was the one, she's at the stage of asking all of these questions that are really profound and deep and kind of living it. And and for her, there was a deep integrity and authenticity in her willingness to say, I don't know, I'm not really there yet. Like, I don't know that I'm even asking this question, but I, I know there's something attracting me here. And I think for youth, sometimes because they are in a public school system or, or a private school system, there's, um, there's something, some definition of success for every program that they're in. And for confirmation, success is completing the program and having a party or celebrating with your parents. But I think, the challenge I see it for pastors and for parents is to redefine, and it sounds like Kellen, you're doing this in many ways, is to kind of make this not seem like a typical class. And what we're doing here is not um, just, you know, for the sake of doing it or it's something all kids do, but make it really meaningful for where people are in their life and their stage of life and their abilities and their stage of faith. Um, at, in that particular place. Yeah. I also, yeah, I also feel that, that oftentimes we're unintentionally operating under a false assumption, which is that the church is the primary source of Christian formation for a young person. I used to do this illustration when meeting with parents at the beginning of a year or the beginning of a confirmation program to, yeah, I used to have a big jug of uh, gumballs on a table, you know, a big jug filled with gumballs. And I would pull out one and I would say, this is the amount of time that your child will spend at church, you know, learning about the Christian faith, experiencing what it means to be a disciple. All the other gumballs in this jug are the time that you will spend with them. And I'm trying to make the point that their ability to influence their children by virtue of the time they simply have with them, let alone their relationship, is far greater. And so one of the reforms I think I would argue for is to put greater emphasis on how uh, you know the confirmation experience, how it takes place within the family, and how is how can the family be a model for how uh, you know, young people are formed in, you know, in the faith. And, and how does that relate to, in a similar way, adults continuing to grow and be formed in their faith? 
Which makes me want to tell another story. Okay, so there's a church in Colorado, a Lutheran church. You can read their portrait on our website. I think it's in Loveland. And they have involved parents in the programs. And if you don't have a parent who's a Christian, you, you find somebody who's like a parent who mentors you, and they do it together. And the idea there is they're experiencing this process together. They're learning about these topics. They're discussing big questions together. But then the conversation doesn't end um, when class is over, but it goes home with them because both the parent and the youth did it together. And so, I mean, so then the parent at home isn't saying like, hey, you know, what'd you learn about? And they're like, oh, nothing. And they're like, you know, how did it go? Fine. Um, and another church who I thought this was a really good place to start also, the Church of the Resurrection, which is in Kansas City, um, they have a curriculum that they kind of publish on their own and make their own copies of. But at the very beginning of the year, they give that to parents and just say, here's what your kid's learning. Here's the topic for each week. Here's the questions we're going to discuss. Here are some of the answers and the Bible passages we're going to be discussing. So um, the kids also have a workbook. And I don't think that one has all the answers in it, but it gives parents something really specific um, to talk about with their kids. And also what we found in our um, research is that a lot of times parents feel really uncomfortable about these topics. I think um, I've heard it said that spirituality and sexuality in many ways are similar types of topics. Like we're kind of a little bit anxious when we start to talk about them. And I think as pastors, we sometimes forget that these can be topics that are um, really intimidating and hard for parents to talk about. So even if we're encouraging them saying like, oh yeah, you should definitely talk about the Holy Spirit this week. That's what we talked about at church. Um, they might not really know what they think about the Holy Spirit or what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. So um it makes me wonder how we can, you know, resource parents and teach them even as their kids are going through um, through the process, if we're going to do confirmation with kids. I think this is a great conversation. And I think we've traversed a lot of ground. If we step back and we look at it, you know, is uh, confirmation something that needs reformed or does it need replaced? Is it effective in our current culture? Are we utilizing the social capital available to us or is that capital working against us? Do we have the proper theological understanding of confirmation? Is it, are we reaching the end goals we're intending they're all good questions, but ultimately, the one question we have to answer is, is it true or false? So uh, think about that over the break. Uh, we're going to come right back to it. Uh, stay with us. And welcome back after the break. Uh, we are excited to have you with us, and we're excited to come to the part where uh, we have to land on one side or the other. It's always the hardest part, but yet also the most fun. So confirmation is no longer an effective form of Christian formation and should be replaced. We've been all over this question front to back, and I'm fascinated to see where our panelists are going to end up. So, uh, Callan, we're going to start with you. Uh, is it true or false, and why? I want to begin in preparation for this podcast. I came across, came across a great quote from Ignatius of Antioch and uh, who said, I wish not merely to be called a Christian, but also to be a Christian. For me, that summarizes what confirmation should ultimately be about. Uh, I'm going, I'm going to go with false. Uh, I do not at this point feel like confirmation needs to be replaced. However, I do believe we need to continually work to reform it to be a more effective form of Christian formation. The other thing I did want to mention in closing is that what I when I think of what we do when we do confirmation is much like what we do in a garden in that we're planting seeds. And we don't know the timeline of when they're going to grow. We may have uh, young people who uh, go through confirmation and it is really life-giving and helps to shape their faith and they continue to mature and grow. And we may have someone else who 
you know, walks away from the faith or feels like they're far from God and it's later in life that maybe something that they learned or experienced during confirmation will come back and play a part in their life. So ultimately, I feel like it's hard to judge the impact of it uh, from our point of view at this, at our, you know, during the confirmation experience. So I'm going with false, but do believe we have a lot of work to do as the church. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kellen. Uh, that's great. So, Chad, we're coming to you with one false on the table. Uh, how are you going to come in? Well, Michael, I really don't believe uh, that the first part of the statement is true. You know, I, um, confirmation is no longer an effective form of Christian formation. I don't think that's true. I think, in fact, it's become uh, an effective form of Christian formation, whereas uh, I would like to see confirmation as less about the Christian formation and more about allowing people to be able to um, measure where they are and from that be able to make the decision to take steps uh, of progress, of, of gaining in theological and faith formation and Christian education, or being able to say, this isn't for me and stepping away, rather than it being the only place where uh, one's faith is formed and nurtured. That being said, I do believe that uh, confirmation as it is now really should be replaced. And as we were able to touch on more in the conversation, not that we need to do away with everything and start completely with scratch and and build something that's totally separate and, and distinct, but we need to keep the core value, but build something that looks so radically different and feels so radically different that it shakes things up for the institution of the church that's hosting it and for the families who are uh, bringing their youth and for the youth themselves who are entering into it so that it can be um, a, a more of a life-giving experience um, for everybody involved. So I'm, I'm going to go with true. Thanks a lot, Chad. That's, uh, that's great. And so it comes to our third panelist, our guest panelist. Uh, Katie, it is always fun when there's a true on the table and a false on the table, and your vote's going to make it. Uh, we are all on the edge of our seats. Katie, true or false? I get to be the tiebreaker. I love this. Uh, I'm going to go with false. But had you asked me a few years ago, I would have said true. And I'll tell you why. When I was reading through the historical documents that are just sort of describe the history of confirmation and why we've done it in the past and why we're doing it, I was kind of like, man, why are we still doing this? There's no real reason anymore. I mean, in the Roman Catholic Church, they have a reason. It's one of the sacraments. They have a reason to keep this going. But in the in the Protestant tradition, most of the Protestant churches um, have voted to say it really doesn't um, have any power anymore. Um, it doesn't get fence the table. It's not your, your way you get to, to participate in the Lord's Supper. But I'll say that um, researchers tend to be kind of dour and kind of Debbie Downers and always seeing the problems. But through our investigation and our visiting congregations, I have just been so inspired by the amazing work and the amazing discipleship that's happening and coming out of congregations. Um, I think at their best, confirmation can integrate youth into the church and also intensify the faith of youth. And we've seen um, really hopeful examples of that happening. And so um, my thought is, why kill something that seems to be bringing about such amazing discipleship and faith in young people, even if it's done imperfectly, even if it's done, you know, with these old school videos and reading these boring books, um, it seems that God is still using it. So I would say false, that it still is effective in many communities and um, that replacing it might actually be a loss. Okay. Thanks a lot, Katie. So uh, the votes are in. Uh, whatever is true has determined that confirmation uh, is no longer an effective form of Christian formation and should be replaced is false. It is false. So that means we should do everything the same way from now into the future. No, okay, I'm getting lots of nodding heads from the panelists. Uh, no, uh, uh, it's a great conversation, uh, and uh, it's a great way to, to end that conversation, I think. Uh, so thanks to all of you. I, I do want to extend a special thanks to uh, to Chad to Kellen, to Katie. Uh, thank you all for your voices in this congregation, uh, this conversation. 
um, for the insight that you brought. It's very helpful. And for Katie, for taking time to join us, uh, representing the research happening across the country. Remember, uh, you can read more about Katie and the work being done at theconfirmationproject.com. A number of those profiles that Katie talked about are already on the website, and there are more coming. Uh, in addition to that, you will find webinars and other continuing education thing happening from uh, professors from across the country. So uh, if you have any uh, relationship to a confirmation program, a confirmation student, or confirmation in general, uh, that's a very wide net. Go to theconfirmationproject.com. Uh, check that out. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in to our podcast. We are the podcast that tries to ask uh, simple questions uh, and to explore the complex faith and theology that surrounds them. Uh, you can hear these uh, by subscribing at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can see all of those options on our website. Uh, remember, we are uh, now on Google Play as soon as that releases and on Stitcher, if that's where you get your podcast. So check that out. Uh, if you would like to uh, subscribe by email, you may do that on our website, whateveristruepodcast.com. Uh, just one last note about iTunes. If you would... Uh, go to iTunes and give us five stars. That would make a significant difference as iTunes is generally the way people find a podcast. So if you go and uh, rate us, uh, that would significantly help us as we try to invite others to participate in our show. Uh, that being said, a special thanks to Kevin McLeod, who composed our theme and the interlude music that you heard today. I am Michael Gwecki, your host and the producer of this show. Uh, make sure to join us next time uh, when our statement for discussion is the church is soft on sin. So until then, whatever is true, think on these things.